What we did at VBS was to go through each day the relationship that we have with God. And that's going to be the message this morning. But the big idea is this as we start. The Bible is God's story of his relationship with man. That's what the, the, the Bible is. It's history. It's God's history. And it's the story of how he relates and how we relate to him. We are created to have relationships. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, you see that God creates a man. He creates Adam and Eve. And God says this, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good to be alone. Now, is that true? Why is it not good to be alone? Let's start off this morning before we uh, pray again and go a little bit deeper into our five points. Let's just start here. Three reasons why it's not good to be alone. Number one. There's no one to help you when you need help. There's no one to help you when you need help. If you were in Yorkville uh, this past Friday and you were in front of our house at uh, very, very early in the morning, you would have seen one of your pastors, I won't mention his name, outside with just his shorts on trying to get the garbage out to the garbage man that was coming down the road. And um, I, I didn't take the garbage out. The, I mean, this guy didn't take the garbage out um, the night before because uh, my garage door broke. And the springs, the tensions, torsion springs, whatever they're called, uh, broke. And so I wasn't able to do it. And then I hear it down the road and I haven't put them out there. And I'm running and I get out there and, uh, and I'm trying to open the garage door. But with my other hands trying to lift it because it's not going open. you got to help it because it's only got the one spring. And I'm out there and I push it up and I finally get it out. And then the guy's sitting there waiting for me. And I bring it up uh, in my shorts and wave to him and go back in. And that was terrible. I needed help. I needed help. When you're alone... When you're alone, there's nobody to help you. Now, you might be one of those uh, individuals who you don't need help. Um, you're self-sufficient. You can take care of yourself. You can help others, but you yourself don't need help. But how about this second reason? Good reason not to be alone is this, because there's no one to stop you when you need to be stopped. Now, I learned this uh, when I got married. Before I got married, when I lived at home, I uh, would get up in the middle of the night and I would make myself a bowl of cereal and I would leave my bowl there. Sometimes I'd take it to the sink, but by the next day, somehow that was taken care of. I, I thought there was a fairy that followed me around and cleaned my dishes. And then I went to college, I lived with a bunch of guys, and we didn't have dishes, we bought all styrofoam stuff so we wouldn't have to do the dishes, we just threw them away. And then I got married, and then I left my dishes out. And the next morning, the ferry wasn't there anymore. And I learned that I needed to take care of myself. I needed to do my own dishes. And I'm learning that still. Learning. Learning. So when you get married, these things, uh, these things begin to stop. And you're saved from yourself. And you begin to learn things about yourself that aren't necessarily good or appealing. I talked about something fun, but all of you who are married here, you know that your spouse knows the worst about you. And, and knows the things that you struggle with and the things that you deal with. And, and that's a good thing because um, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, when you're alone, you can get into a pattern of self-reliance, of, of, of really a place of darkness where you are not being stopped in your evil, in your sin. Third reason I jotted down is that there's, when you're alone, there's no one to protect you when you need protection. Several years ago now, a man by the name of Larry Walters 
decided that it would be a good deal, a good idea, uh, to fill up a bunch of helium balloons and tie it to his lawn chair. And then he uh, was going to go up in the air for a little joyride on his lawn chair. And he said this, he said um, that he was going to take his pellet gun up with him and then when he wanted to descend, he would just shoot a few of the balloons and come down for a nice, smooth landing. So Larry, he got into his lawn chair, he got the balloons and he got a six-pack of beer and he had his pellet gun, had some chips and he went up in the air and he went up to 16,000 feet in Southern California and he entered into Los Angeles airspace. Um, he was arrested, he, he, he lived, he was brought down down. Okay, he made it. But guess what? Larry was single. Okay? No married man is going to be able to do that, right? Larry Walters, there's no one to protect you when you need protection. Now, those are funny things, but uh, they're all true. They're they're, uh, really listed here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon, said to have been one of the wisest men to have ever lived. God gave him wisdom. And listen to, to what he said about being alone here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow to help. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's not good for man to be alone. Two are better than one. And God has created us for relationships. Relationships with one another and relationship with him. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Uh, before we look at the five days that the VBS did, we're going to look at them in five points this morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you that, uh, that you have created us this way. And I pray that, Lord, you would be our teacher this morning. And in the same way as our kids looked at this relationship that we have with you on their level and were challenged, may you challenge us right where we're at today no matter where that is, that we would be challenged um, to have a relationship with you. And Lord, that we would see and behold your goodness, that you give us this relationship by your grace, by your mercy, through your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's start here. Number one, day one of VBS was this, the relationship begins. The relationship begins. Help me out here. In the beginning, God created the... God created all that there is. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation story. The narrative of the beginning of the age. The beginning of time. It is there that God made male and female. And He made them to have relationship with one another and and a relationship with Him. Now, Christians differ on a lot of different things when it comes to uh, creation or the beginning of time or even the interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. There are some who believe in in an old earth. There are some that believe in a young earth. There are some who believe that God created things through the ages. And there's, there's a lot of different interpretations of the beginning of time amongst Christians, Bible-believing Christians. 
But all Christians believe these two things about origins, about the beginning of time. Number one, that God was behind creation. That all things were created by God. And second one is this. That God created men and women in his own image. So even if there is... So, some of those who believe that God used the evolutionary process to bring about uh, what we see in, as natural, we must reject the idea that men and women came from the same stuff as the animals. God created men and women in his image. You're not just a glorified baboon sitting here this morning. You are a man, you are a woman created in the image of God Almighty. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now isn't this interesting? Um, Jesus was a man. God is spoken of as um, a male. He, God, him. But you see that God is spirit, and those who must worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God Almighty does not have a a gender. We see that here in in verse one, uh, chapter one, verse twenty-seven. Male and female, He created them. So there's something in a man that reflects the image of God in a distinct way, and there's something in a woman that reflects God in a specific, distinct way. Isn't that interesting? And God creates them, and we see that He has created them in His image. Let us make man in our image, verse 26, after our likeness. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Let me give you four things. Now there, is a, there are exceptions to these rules. There, there are, um, because of sin, because of the damage of creation, there are those people who aren't these things, but they're uh, a minority these are generally true. Number one, we are rational. We are rational people. Just like God, we're able to use logic. We're able to use reason. We're able to engage in argument and debate. The people that are out here with the signs about abortion, we are able to engage with them and, and argue with them. Uh, not today, don't do that today, but in, in, the, in the world of theology and doctrine, we can think, we can have thoughts, we can, we can reason. In 1 Peter 3.15 We read that we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in us. And so we are always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have in us, in a rational, in a reasonable, in a logical way. William Lane Craig, Christian philosopher, has outlined five major arguments for the existence of God. And these are, let me give it to you briefly. You can write these down if you want to look them up later. Number one, the cosmological argument from contingency. The existence of God. Number two, the Kalam cosmological argument based on the beginning of the universe that would show that there is a God. Then there's the moral argument that... uh, It's based upon objective moral values and duties. What we believe to be good, why do we believe it to be good? Well, we would say because God is the ultimate good, and so our morals then flow from the the reality of God's existence. 
Number four, we talk about the teleological argument from fine-tuning that the universe, uh, if there was just an atom this way or an atom that way, we would not have life on this earth. And then five, the ontological argument from the possibility of God's existence to his actuality. These are all arguments in philosophy and theology for the existence of God and they're rational arguments. William Lane Craig says this, these are, I believe, good arguments for God's existence. That is to say, they are logically valid. Their premises are true and their premises are more plausible in light of the evidence than their negations. Therefore, insofar as we are rational people, we should embrace their conclusions. We, like God, are rational. But then we're also emotional. And sometimes, for us, our emotions can impact our rationality, can it not? But we are emotional. God is emotional. God loves us. He gets angry. He gets sad. The shortest verse in the Bible is what? Two words. What is it? Jesus wept. We are also emotional. I realize this more and more each day as I get older I, I'm becoming more emotional. I was watching uh, one of the Rocky movies with my kids the other day, and I had tears running down my eyes. I really did. I was crying. Um, that might be just my problem, but we'll move on. Um, we are then also relational. That's what we're talking about today. God's made us to be in relation with one another. And then fourthly, how do we uh, display the image of God? How are we like our creator, God? We are volitional. That means we can make choices. That we can uh, see um, things in front of us and we can choose to go this way and choose to go that way. Now, our uh, being volitional is different from God's because God is sovereign. So God makes choices, God, God predestines, God determines, and that's a different type of a volitional choice than we have. But nonetheless, we ha- apparently can make choices. You can choose today to stop at McDonald's or to stop at Subway if you want to on the way home. There's an apparent volitional ability that we have that reflects God Almighty. And you say, well, what about free will and isn't God in control and isn't God predetermining everything? Well, it's kind of like the uh, couple that were going into premarital counseling and they sat down together and they took out a questionnaire and they read the question together and the first question was this, uh, it was for the, the young man that was there. Are you entering this marriage of your own free will? He he just looked at the question, looked at the question, and his fiancée went over to him and said, Write down yes. (laughs) So yes, I have free will. I have no choice but to have it. All right, number two. Some of you got that. Good. Number two. Number two. The relationship is broken. So God who makes Adam and Eve and makes them in his own image, who has a relationship with them in the garden, he's walking and talking with them, and they're communing with one another. They're naked and unashamed, the text says. And, and the big idea about being naked and unashamed is not about the bodies. It's about what that symbolizes. It's that they had nothing to hide. They had no, nothing to hide with one another. They had nothing to hide with God. But then something happens in Genesis chapter 3. The devil, in the form of a serpent, tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that God had commanded them not to eat from. 
In Genesis chapter 2, God is giving them instructions as to uh, what to do in the garden, what not to do. There was one thing not to do. Here's what God says. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then in chapter 3, the serpent shows up. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. The devil is deceiving and distorting the truth. And he lays the temptation before them. And Adam and Eve sin. Now some say, well, Eve sinned. And she did. But isn't it curious here? That the woman's there and the man sits back and he waits to see what happens to his wife. They enter into their sin together. The relationship is broken. The relationship is changed. Adam and Eve's sin after being tempted by the devil. And Adam and Eve's sin had historical consequences. Historical. Everything changed. Sin came into the world and some of the big Part of the curse in Genesis chapter 3, there's many different things there, like the man having to work the ground for a harvest, that um, there's different curses, the curse of the serpent, but a big one that stood out to me in the curse because of sin was this, that to the woman you shall have pain and childbearing, and you will have in pain you shall bring forth children. So there's going to be pain in childbearing. Well, I think if there was sin or not sin in the world, there would be pain in childbirth, okay? So I don't think it's really just the childbirth part. It's the childbearing as in the child rearing part. The child growing up part. Now because sin is in the world, now you have to raise your child in a place that wants to devour them and defeat them and destroy them. That's painful. How many parents here have spent sleepless nights crying because of a son or daughter who have lost their way and pray that God would bring them back? This is a result of the curse. The relationship with God is broken. Here's the application point. See if you agree. Sin has consequences, even forgiven sin. Would you agree with that? God forgives us all of our sin through His mercy, by His grace. But there are still consequences to our sin. I was talking to a man two weeks ago who was unfaithful with his wife. And she forgave him and took him back. But he had to sleep on the couch for six months. I say, well, she forgave him. Why shouldn't everything go back to normal? No, sin has its consequences. And he had to, not, he had to sleep on that couch. And he had to prove his, his devotion to her. And he had to prove that he was repentant and that he changed his ways. And he had to prove to his family that uh, he was a one-woman man again. And those things take time. And sin has its consequences. Billy Sunday, the baseball player turned preacher, he said this, We treat sin as a cream puff when we should treat sin like a rattlesnake. So many of us, even in the church, we just kind of wink and smile at sin. I know in my life, it's so easy to do your own thing and and to, to assume on God's grace and presume on it that you will be forgiven and to not treat sin as a horrendous thing that it is. It's, it's the, the reason why we're broken. 
The relationship is broken with God. Thirdly, the relationship is promised to be restored. Now we start hearing the good news again. So that which was broken, that which was damaged, that was seemingly beyond repair, is promised to be repaired. It's promised to be restored. And this promise comes through a man named Abram. Abram, then named Abraham, is called by God in Genesis chapter 12. God says to Abram, leave your land. I'm going to take you. I'm going to make you the leader of a great nation. So the promise comes through Abraham, a man, and then it comes through a nation, the nation of Israel. God raises up the nation of Israel to be a light to all of the world of the goodness and the glory of God. And so the Israelites are charged with this task to bring God's glory to the nations and they fail and they falter and they sin. The promise then comes through a royal lineage. The royal lineage, the the house of David, of King David and Jesus is promised to be born, to come, uh, the Messiah. I was reading something this past week that there are over 3,000 verses concerning um, the Messiah in the Old Testament. That uh, Jesus had been promised. There's a promise that was to come. That, that hang in there. Things are bad now, but there's a day that's coming and uh, the Messiah is coming. Jesus then himself, when he appeared to his disciples after he, he rose from the dead in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus Jesus appears to two of his disciples not of the twelve but two of his greater disciples and and they didn't know it was Jesus and they're walking along and Jesus says this to them what is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk so this is the Messiah crucified but now risen walking with his disciples and they don't know it's Jesus And they said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that do not know these things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this verse. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study to be a part of. The Messiah showing the scriptures concerning himself, the promised to come. So the promise is made. And fourthly, the relationship is restored. It comes true. In 1 Peter, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn over to 1 Peter. 
chapter 2. And really, we're just going to kind of reflect on um, different parts of chapter 2. But let's start at verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, speaking of Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. First, the relationship restored. The restoration, though, was costly. It cost Christ his life. Jesus gave of his life. He suffered, and it says there he was hung on a tree. The scriptures tell us in the Old Testament that those who are hung on a tree, those who are crucified, are cursed by God. And Jesus was cursed. He was cursed. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was broken and crushed for our sins. But by His stripes, we are healed. By the lashings that He took, by the blood that He shed, Jesus Christ makes a way for us to come back to God, to have a right relationship with God. And there's this thing in between us now, the thing that we're not unashamed before God, we're not naked before God, we hide stuff from God, we hide stuff from others, we hide the sin, but now because of Jesus, we can bring that sin to the light, and we can receive forgiveness for it, because Jesus died in our place. And the punishment that we deserve for our sin was on Jesus Christ so that those who would believe on Him would have their sin removed and instead have the righteousness of Christ in them. This is the good news. This is the relationship that's restored. And it was costly to Jesus Christ. He died for you. He died for me. The restoration was not only costly, the restoration can be rejected. In chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Peter, says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God. Rejected by men. Jesus came and he was rejected. Most of his people rejected him. The high priests, the rulers, the religious authorities of the day rejected Jesus. He came to his own and his own did not know him. We read in John chapter 1. But all who, those who did believe... To those who received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. So it can be rejected. This restoration then must be embraced, not rejected. Verse 6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you believe? Have you embraced Christ by faith? And this is what we ask the kids too. Do you believe? Do you have faith in Christ? This relationship that is broken because of sin can be restored, can be made whole. You can be made right with God. You don't have to fear God. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. It's true. And as we begin to grow in our knowledge of God, we begin to see Him as our loving Heavenly Father who came into the world and died on the cross for us in our place so that we could have a right relationship with Him. Do you believe this? Have you embraced 
Jesus Christ by faith. And if you have, verse 25 is true of you, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You've returned. You've come back to the beginning. You come back to the relationship that began in the garden. Now you've entered back into that relationship through Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the relationship continues. The relationship continues. In Matthew chapter 28, we have what is called the Great Commission. Turn to Matthew 28. Start at verse 16. So Jesus has risen. He accomplished salvation on the cross. He died and rose again. He appeared to the disciples. He walked with the men in Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus. He broke out the Bible, had a phenomenal, awesome Bible study with those guys to show himself in the scriptures. And then he stands before his disciples Verse 16, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now just to note, this is the risen Christ. This is the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whom these disciples saw and met with and were with. And it's amazing to me, verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. Even that the risen Savior was right here. And there were some that doubted. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What an incredible claim. What an incredible statement. All authority in heaven and earth. That is the authority of the God of the universe. That is the authority of the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And Jesus, this man who is more than a man, who was born in Bethlehem but existed before Bethlehem, is now laying the claim that all power, all authority, all in this universe is under my power. So go, therefore, And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So all authority has been given to me. I'm the risen Savior and Lord. I am the beginning and the end. Before Abraham was, I am this man Jesus. All authority, he says, to go and to make disciples, to make more disciples. He sends his disciples to make other disciples. He sends you as a follower of Jesus Christ to go make other followers of Jesus Christ. He sends us, Village Bible Church, to make other disciples all around the Fox Valley area and the world to go and bring this good news to the the lost and the dying and the broken and the ones who do have no relationship with God. And he sends us, and then he gives us his promise. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promises to go with us. The relationship continues in this life and beyond. This relationship continues when we sin. Even when we sin, it continues. 
If you're here this morning and you're a believer, but you feel like your sin is causing separation with God, sin does separate from God. But Jesus died for our sin. He paid for our sin. 1 John chapter 1 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness do not deceive yourself you are full of sin but if you confess your sin but if you walk in the light the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin Jesus cleanses us from our sin Jesus loves us even when we are in our sin Um, some of you uh, have kids that are just learning to walk. Mine are a little bit older than that now. Um, but this VBS week, you get to see all the kids in the nursery and, and uh, kids, run, just kids everywhere. You saw the numbers. There, there's kids all over the place. There's still a couple in the lost and found box too, so by the way. You might want to grab some. Um, and uh, I was watching little kids who, who can, they start to begin to walk. And I remember when our firstborn began to walk and it's like, get the video camera out, you know. Get the video. And they're balancing up against the sofa and, and then they, they, get, they, they step away from the, the couch and, and you know the, the weight of their giant head is just leading them forward and, and uh, especially my kids because I have a huge head so, um, and, and they take one step after another and then they inevitably fall and what does everybody do in the room? Yay! They walked! And then you help them back up and they begin to walk again. Sometimes we view our Heavenly Father in a way that's not how He is. Sometimes we view Him as the Dad, the Heavenly Father, who's always demanding better of us, and He's there to condemn us when we fall. Jesus said this about God. He says, how many of you, when your children ask for bread, you give them a a snake? Said, ask anything of the Heavenly Father. You're just mere human people, and you know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will our Heavenly Father give to those who ask? And so the true picture of God Almighty, of us, when we step away from the couch, and we walk, and we're following Him, and we're living for Him, but then we sin, and we fall, and we falter. He's not the dad that stands over and says, Get up! You better be walking. You're six months old, for Pete's sake. You should be walking better than that. Get back up. No. He helps us back up. And he says, You can do it again. You can go further this next time. You can continue to walk. You can walk in the light as I am in the light. This is the picture of our Heavenly Father that the Scriptures teach. Our relationship continues even as we battle sin and even as we suffer. Some of you today are here and you're suffering at some level. And in that suffering, you begin to question, is God there? Is God here? In John chapter 16, verse 33, we read, Jesus says this, In this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says you're going to have trouble. 
beware of the Christians who says, just come to Jesus, just come to faith, and, and you'll be taken care of. You'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, as long as you give, but then God will give back to you. Jesus said it quite the opposite. He said, in this life you will have trouble. And some of the times, the trouble comes because you're a follower of Christ. But take heart, Jesus says, because I've overcome the world. And so the the hardship or the the suffering or the persecution or whatever it is that you face, know that Jesus has conquered it. That in the end, Jesus wins. That in the end, the one that has all authority over heaven and earth lives in you. And so the relationship continues even when we suffer and even when Satan buffets. Satan buffets. I thought of the hymn, Though Satan Should Buffet, It Is Well With My Soul. Buffeting is um, it's a fighting against, it's a raging against, it's, a, it's an agitation, it's a, and Satan will do that. Especially if you're one who's continuing this relationship with God and God is using you for his kingdom, you better believe that you're going to be under attack. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we read this, The greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So once again, the Lord of heaven and earth lives in you, and so that you are attacked, that you uh, would be feeling under the, uh, the domination or the oppression of the devil. Take heart. Jesus Christ lives in you, and he has conquered the devil. The relationship continues. And then it continues, this is just my last point, even in the next life. Even in the next life, the the, the grave is not the end. Death is not the end. That Jesus Christ promises eternal life for all who would believe. What a great and privilege and honor it is to think about the new heavens and the new earth where God is our God. He's wiping the tear from our eyes that there's no more suffering or crying or pain Behold, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Things are going to be new. When the full restoration comes in the new heavens and the new earth. When God recreates and he, he, he recreates all that there is and, and sin is gone and, and, and that rule and, and the law of sin and death is over and now it's God on the throne, his people in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. So this is the big picture. This is the big picture of the Bible. This is what our kids talked about this week. Creation to the fall, to the promise, to the fulfillment, and then to the future. It was a great week of VBS as the kids were challenged to see that we are made for relationships. Remember, it's not good to be alone, God said in the garden. It's not good for man to be alone. So don't be alone. Have relationship with other Believers, other disciples of Jesus Christ have a relationship with the God who made you. He made a way. The promise is in Jesus Christ for us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day today. And uh, we thank you as we prayed earlier in the service for the week and for each and every young person that came into the doors here of this church, your church. And we're hearing about this good news. And I pray that that would uh, bear fruit in the days to come as they grow up. Lord, that um, that you would amaze us with our kids. uh, That you would be raising up great men and women who are after your own heart. Who are on fire for you. 
who are heeding your command to go and make disciples of all the nations. And I pray, Lord, that it would begin right here. So, God, we thank you for uh, this time that we get to come together today and and celebrate you and and to look at the big picture and see what you've done and are doing. and, And we're so grateful that you invite us into that work. I pray, Lord, that each one here today would receive this free gift that you have given through Jesus Christ, that we would embrace it and not reject it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.